Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 267 being recorded on Tuesday, June 15th, 2021. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, one topic we have really wanting to do a deep dive on, uh, and it's one of your favorites, is the impact from COVID on the grocery and restaurant industry. So we thought we'd invite a true food expert, Matt Newberg. He is the founder of Hungry. Hungry is a new media platform examining the impact of technology on how people eat. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's awesome to be here. Matt, we are thrilled to have you. Uh, Nobody but you will ever get this, but uh, Clubhouse comes up all the time. And I'm like, (laughs) I was on Clubhouse back when it was cool in like 2020. (laughs) That was fun. I, I really enjoyed that. And it's definitely gone somewhere else. But uh, but yeah, definitely. I've tapered off of that a little bit. I, I've uninstalled it. I feel like it's totally <laughs> jumped the shark. But you you invited me to a food chat like early on. And so I feel like uh, a rare moment of me being an early adopter. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. Um, so we're going to jump into all things food uh, and hungry. But uh, before we do... Uh, our listeners always like to get uh, a little bit of um, behind the scenes color on our guests. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you got interested in the food industry. Yeah, of course. So, you know, my background's kind of really in the technology space. I was a product manager, most recently at Vimeo. And, um, you know, I started getting really kind of curious about the food delivery space, I'd say towards the end of 2018. Uh, I took a trip to India and I'd been reading about ghost kitchens. And while I was working in tech, I was making video content around food. And it was really kind of just like food tours, kind of like munchy style. And I, when I saw, when I heard what Travis Kalanick was doing in LA with cloud kitchens, I decided I, I had to kind of merge this um, kind of what I was doing with video content and start examining kind of the technology behind the food industry. And when I reached LA in early 2019 to shoot this, my, I just had one of those moments where you kind of see the, you know, like the, the impact of technology inside of a, a like food operation. It was, it was, it wasn't like, um, walking into a QSR restaurant. It was like walking into like, you know, ground zero of this like new, I, I didn't know what to think of it. And I was just blown away by how many tablets and people screaming and shouting. And they're like, you know, 20 or 20 some odd kitchens uh, under one roof and, um, you know, put out a video in 2019, kind of profiling that kind of for the first time, giving people a taste of what ghost kitchens were. It got a a great response and I kind of dropped everything and decided I was going to start writing about food and tech um, on a weekly basis. So I started really ramping up hungry in in late 2019 and then the pandemic hit and, um, been covering everything from you know dark convenience stores to ghost kitchens and virtual brands all the way down to you know alternative protein and uh, and a few other little trends here and there like personalized nutrition which is you know basically wearables and you know the gut microbiome and how that's going to basically play a role in in personalizing a lot of the food that we eat over over the next few decades in my view and um it's been a wild and crazy journey especially uh with everything that's happened, I could have never predicted it. And I think the timing of me kind of picking this as my, as my beat was, uh, was a great move. So, uh, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Well, I have a million questions just on your intro, but let's start, let's start at, um, uh, I'm the entrepreneur on the show. Tell me a little bit about the hungry business model. Are you doing like the sub stack kind of direct crater direct to an audience thing, or is it more of a paid, video channel or, or ad supported? How does that work? Yeah. So it started out with video, which was, you know, it's all been completely free. And then I started adding in October, I, I launched a paywall, um, paid subscription product. 
for industry insiders. Um, and so that, that gives them access to um, premium content every week and uh, also maintain a free weekly newsletter. So the goal is to kind of build this community um, of industry insiders and uh, also, you know, create a funnel through the free newsletter. So that's kind of been the model to date. Cool. Are you using the Substack platform or can you, can you say what platform? Oh, no, I'm using uh, something called ghost, which we, we basically ghost, customized. Yeah, um, yeah. Substack charges a pretty high commission. So yeah. uh, just basically pay for the Stripe fees and, um, and the ghost subscription is very cheap. So yeah, I basically yeah. rolled my own kind of version of Substack. Cool. And with ghost, you get to control more. It's kind of, you know, they can't just shut you down someday unless like the internet shut you down or something. Yeah, it's 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 like a modern version of WordPress. And and I should also say that I, I have a podcast as well called The Feed. You can check it out. I'm definitely nowhere near the number of episodes as you you guys, but hopefully one day I'll, I'll get there. And um we you know done a few in-depth videos on you can search for them on YouTube and they're about, you know, they range in length, but they're around, you know, 20, 30 minutes long, kind of deep dives into a particular topic. Well, the the super secret of our show is when we have three listeners and one of them is Jason's mom. So um, while we, we're on. winning on episodes, you may be ahead of us on listeners. <laughs> we mean an early decision to go quali- quantity over quality. <laughs> and uh, I, I should point out the other fact. Uh, you can't say you have 30-minute podcasts and that they're deep dives because we, we usually haven't finished our intro in the first <laughs> We, uh, I've heard that all content needs to be more brief. And so Scott and I like to buck. We don't like to follow the industry trends. We like to set them. So we love it. We're too long. Uh, yeah. So there's a bunch of things we want to jump into. Um, but side note before we do, are you wearing a glucose monitor right now? (laughs) No, I did that last summer for about a month. I tried, um, two different programs. One was called clear and based in the Netherlands. Another one's called levels. And since that's since I was going into that, um, you know, there's been a number of other startups that have popped up that are, you know, they're all using the same Freestyle Libre uh, technology uh, hardware sensor, which is made by Abbott, um, and they're just kind of innovating on the software layer layer of like you know daily logging of your meals and tracking your your levels. So and and then you know obviously making recommendations about what you should or should not eat. Um, but it was definitely fun. It was definitely like a, a really good learning experience. And I highly recommend anyone do it. You don't have to be a pre-diabetic or a diabetic. It's it's um, really powerful information. Yeah. If nothing else, I super admire Abbott Labs because you think you figure like only about, you know, 40% of the American population has diabetes. So your TAM is just not big enough if you can only sell <laughs> to be with diabetes. So they figured out a way to sell the glucose monitor to the whole world. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, it is. I, yeah. It, it I wish it, I wish it was for the entire world. I mean, it's pretty hard because you have to get a doctor's note. Yeah. And it's, it's still kind of expensive for not for offspring yes. use, right? Like, um, yeah. And so, uh, for listeners that probably don't know what we're talking about, like this is this kind of trend, I would call it an extension of the kind of self measurement thing where, uh, people are using these real time glucose monitors that you wear, um, to, get like really detailed insight into how the food you eat uh, and the timing of that impacts your, your uh, blood glucose throughout the day. And they can, you know, prescribe changes to your diet and lifestyle based on, on your body chemistry. So did you find it useful or was it a gimmick for you? No, definitely useful. Like I, I have some tips now, like, you know, tricks and little hacks, like, if I'm going to eat something that I know is going to spike my blood sugar, I'll take a little bit of apple cider vinegar to kind of flatten the spike. Um, if I do happen to eat something that makes me feel a little sluggish, you know, definitely like walking for about 10 or 15 minutes is a, is a good, good one. And then like the order in which you eat foods, like always eat your fiber before your carbs. So if I'm going to eat pizza, I always got to order a salad or even better put the salad on the pizza. Um, if you're into that sort of thing. So, um, and levels makes it really fun. They they give you all these little mini hacks that you can do and you can kind of see whether they work for you or not. Um, and that, that's kind of the whole idea. It's, it's highly personalized. So what, my, what might work for me isn't necessarily going to work for you uh, because we, you know, you and I, we might share, you know, 
something like 98 to 99% of the same DNA, but we, we only share a very small percentage of the same uh, gut microbes. So that's kind of where the, the magic s- secret sauce, I guess, lies. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I've talked to several people who did some variation of that program, and most say that they were like somewhat surprised that they had like a preconceived notion that there were certain foods that would like really spike their blood sugar or wouldn't, mm-hmm. and that that like sometimes the the tests were validating, but often they learned that their body responded a little differently than they expected. Yeah, like I I went to town. You know, I started eating everything under the sun in the first week. Well, in and, the name of science. Yeah, exactly. And like, honestly, eating the cheeseburger wasn't bad. It was the, it was like the Coca-Cola I had with it or, you know, having, it's all about the ratio of, of like fats to carbs. And um, if that's, if that ever gets to be, you know, a certain, if that gets out of whack, then you're going to have a spike. That's why I just you, go pure carbs. <laughs> yeah. Did you try a Venti Starbucks vanilla latte? I'm asking oh boy. for Jason. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, you know, you can guess what that would have done. Oh my God. Like, yeah, I'd be, yeah, we, we don't need to go there. Um, so let's pivot to B2B food. Um, mm. and, uh, Matt, one of the things that, uh, I admire about you is you, you, um, take your journalism seriously. Uh, so I, if I'm remembering right, one of the first conversations I had with you, you casually mentioned that you posed as a, Amazon Fresh Delivery driver, so that you could sneak into the Amazon Fresh store that that was at the time a dark store in LA. Thank you. That yes, that is correct. That's awesome. Um, so the so that's kind of how I discovered you. I I am a paid subscriber to the newsletter. I've been following you ever since. Um, and Scott and I have been wanting to talk about a bunch of these kind of macro food trends. Um, and so I thought you would just be a a great person to have a perspective on those. So um, if you indulge me for like a 30 second setup, mm-hmm. the, the biggest thing I talk about with clients in terms of this macro trend is what I call the, the breaking down of the swim lanes. And by that, what I mean is in the pre-pandemic world, uh, there were certain occasions where the American family was going to buy their calories at a grocery store and make their own meal for at home consumption. And there would be other occasions when they were going to stop at a QSR like McDonald's and very likely consume those calories in the car on the way home. And there would be other occasions when they were going to stop at a fast casual restaurant and have a Applebee's uh, sit down dinner. And Applebee's competed with the other fast casual restaurants. McDonald's competed with the other QSRs and uh Hy-Vee or Albertsons competed with the other grocery stores, but they really didn't. They each had a share of the American stomach and they didn't really necessarily compete hard with each other. And in my mind, one of the things that happened either coincidentally or because of the pandemic is uh, they have all moved into each other's space. And by that, what I mean is you can now have, you know, ready to eat meals delivered from Whole Foods in an hour. Um, you can't, you know, obviously you can get all those, those meals delivered for at home, uh, consumption, which is mostly how restaurant meals got consumed in the last year. Uh, but you can also use your mobile order ahead at Applebee's, have your meal waiting for you, um, walk into the restaurant, have the food already served, pay at a touchscreen and walk out and kind of have as fast a turnaround in Applebee's as you would have in a McDonald's. Um, and oh, by the way, McDonald's will deliver groceries with your with your meal, right? <laughs> so, so I kind of feel like all those those swim lanes are off, and everyone is competing for every calorie now. Does like, am I seeing that right? Is that absolutely? I think it's you know, grocers becoming rest. You know, they, the term grocerant <laughs> became a thing, and then you had restaurants becoming grocers, like your local, you know, neighborhood restaurant was using their you know, U.S. foods or what, you know, their supplier to basically, instead of like turning that into prepared food, they would just sell those raw ingredients at the onset of the pandemic. Um, Yeah, so much, so much happening, but the job to be done remained the same, you know, feed me uh, a certain level of quality and nutrition and convenience. Yeah. Um, I love grocerant, by the way. I hadn't heard that. So I'll be using that now. Uh, I'll owe you a quarter every time I... I <laughs> I've stolen the calorie swim lane, so we're even now. 
Okay, awesome. Um, so one thing that just uh, super timely uh, is, is Scott knows all too well, the U.S. Department of Commerce publish all this retail sales data every month. And mm-hmm. uh, I geek out on it and it, it published this morning. Yep. Um, and uh, one of the, the things I always like to look at that I think has been fascinating is one of the categories in the U.S. Department of Commerce data is food and beverage retailers. And yep. another category is restaurants. Like, they, like the yep. U.S. Department of Commerce uh, definition of retail includes restaurants. And so I went back in history and looked at like, what's, oh, cool. What's the breakdown in dollars people spent at restaurants versus uh, food and beverage stores? And for most of the last decade, it was kind of 50-50. And then yep. the pandemic hits and it went 70-30, which, by the way, surprises people. People expected like, oh, restaurants lost even more. But because of home delivery of restaurants, rest, you know, and, and of course, the mm-hmm. QSRs thing uh, with drive through, um, it was like 70, 30. And and then uh, it kind of leveled off to maybe like 60, 40, 55, 45. And I, I've been curious to see if it's going to fall all the way back to 50, 50, if there's if there's going to be a flip. And in this month's data, so it's middle of June. So the May data just came out. And the the restaurant trade organization is publishing a version of the data this morning that shows yeah. that like restaurants surpassed um, grocery stores for the for the first time in you know since before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And side note, they they kind of um, uh, jiggered the data. They're not comparing yeah. restaurants to grocery stores. They're comparing restaurants and bars to yeah. Gro- grocery stores and grocery stores are a subset of the food and beverage retail so like i would argue it ought to be food and beverage retail against restaurant and grocery and in that case the gap has narrowed but restaurants are are still losing but the restaurant industry of course wants to take the most positive spin so have you followed that at all and do you have a a hypothesis or a prediction about like what the what the post-pandemic ratio looks like totally yeah I, i so I was yeah I was looking at that data today and I saw Jonathan Mays from restaurant um from that restaurant publication publish this and I dig, dug in and I saw that five billion dollar gap and I was like you're adding in the bars and like subtracting the liquor stores yep. so um, that's a five billion dollar gap you know in the grand scheme of things yeah you could basically say it's it's fifty fifty now and I would expect that kind of as uh you know vaccinations uh, increase and you know the weather gets warmer and that sort of thing um you know historically food at home i think you know pretty much eclipsed uh food away from home up until you know it started getting really neck and neck i think around like you know 2019 as the economy was really booming um you know i think that's generally a sign of of wealth and developed countries is you know a strong strong restaurant consumption and bar consumption um so longer term you know what where does this where does this all go i i think it goes to grocery to be honest with you i i think these things are you know the same blips that we saw in covid are kind of going to happen in a you know as as reopenings happen this summer and so i think longer term you know, like the seismic shift of these things, like, yeah, they can, they can change on a dime, but like the longer term sustainable trend, I think is food at home. And what that looks like is just going to change. It's not going to be, you know, it's going to be more meal solution driven things as we, as you mentioned, um, you know, where you're getting, you know, maybe a, a, a famous chef has created a frozen type of product or, a fresh prepared product, or maybe there's even a ghost kitchen inside of a Walmart, you know? And so then how do these things get counted? But clearly anything gets, gets sold through these retail channels is going to get counted as food at home. And like, technically if I'm consuming, if I'm consuming restaurant delivery today, that's being counted as food away from home, right? Even though I'm consuming it at home, right? And deliveries, you know, something like close to 10% of, of the, that entire, in, you know, sector. So you know, I do think uh, over time as these like quick commerce players, and we'll talk about those, you know, enter the market, they're going to be doing more and more restaurant style meals. And, and that will, 
and because it works, because the unit economics are better in that scenario, I think it's just going to steal some share away from the unsustainable, you know, marketplace restaurant delivery model. When you, um, when you introed the, what got you into Hungary, um, you talked about Travis's new startup, maybe, um, and I'm kind of the, the noob and I feel like you guys are at a 400 level and I'm, I'm still at 101, but, uh, you know, so maybe explain what it is. He's the Uber founder, explain what it is he's building and kind of what you know about it. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, how prevalent are these ghosts? And I, I always get confused because I, some people say ghost and dark, is that the same thing or is there some difference? Yeah, it's all the same. One's okay. just slightly friendlier. I don't know which one's friendlier, honestly, but yeah. Yeah. Cool. Dark well, Knight versus us. Casper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Ghost makes me think of Snapchat. So I don't yeah. Know. Um, Ghost Kitchen. So, you know, I think this, you know, you're seeing these trends play out in both grocery and restaurants, which is like startups that are basically owning more and more of the value chain. So, um, you know, cloud kitchens is really, uh, you know, at its core, a real estate company. There's a real estate side to it where they're actually going into, you know, di- they're buying up distressed properties that are located in, in zip codes where there's high, you know, demand for del- delivery food. And, um, you know, they do a lot of research into what, what those demographics are in advance. They buy that building and then they basically lease it to, you know, call it 20 or 30 uh, restaurants, you know, or food entrepreneurs that want to do delivery, they set them up with a tablet that lists them on every single major delivery marketplace. Um, they also, you know, can license some of their own in-house brands to them. And um, so they own those brands, they own the software tablets. Um, and now you're kind of like, you know, this food entrepreneur trying to make it work for delivery with all these, you know, 20 to 30% commissions. And you need to do about like, I'd say 750K in, in top line sales to break even in one of those kitchens. They can cost, you know, six or 7,000, maybe even more. And it's about 200 square feet. <laughs> so you can fit like maybe two people in there. And so it's like um, we work for kitchens, I guess is kind of how you put it. Yeah, a lot of people yeah. have compared okay. them to WeWork, but you know, they actually, you know, WeWork was leasing spaces and they're buying spaces. And the reason yeah. they're buying they're buying these properties is to um, you know, really improve the value of that real estate over time and use technology to figure out what brands should we put into these kitchens, who should we go after, what virtual brands should we sell, um, what other kind of, you know, non-food kind of convenience items should we sell alongside that. And I think over time you know, it's going to be a full on vertical play where they started with the real estate and they're just going to move into the last mile component. Because right now, with all these drivers coming in, you don't gain the efficiencies of, of, of true batching because everything is fragmented across, you know, wh- 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 whoever owns the customer, whether it's DoorDash, Uber Eats, Postmates. And so what I believe will happen over time is that, you know, Cloud Kitchens becomes this kind of like last mile hyperlocal Amazon that's in your neighborhood. And uh, they've just co-located a bunch of restaurants and in there that who do enough delivery volume where it doesn't make sense for them to be doing it out of their brick and mortar, right? So obviously in COVID, every restaurant became effectively a de facto ghost kitchen right. um, because they weren't able to seat customers. Now as dining rooms, you know, roar, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to do as much delivery volume. So you know, the brands that want to do that will have a kind of a experience center that's augmented by this dark infrastructure and the, and the goal is to make that infrastructure kind of plug and play. And you could light up a bunch of different markets, uh, you know, pretty quickly and, and launch new concepts. So, uh, that's a, that's kind of a medium winded answer, but I, I can dive into any of those aspects more. Yeah, a couple of quick ones. So, is this like in two neighborhoods in LA, and or because he's he's like a bazillionaire off of Uber going public, um, okay. or is this like in you know I'd be shocked that it's in eighty cities and doubling uh, rapidly. What's the scale? It's I have I'm tracking close to sixty right now in the US, okay. um, with some good a decent percentage of them are coming online right now. So um, that's better than I would have guessed. Tier one and tier two markets. Uh, yeah. And then uh, Mark Laurie just left Walmart and is mm-hmm. doing something kind of like this with his brother. Are they the same thing or does he have a different concept? 
I wrote about that one last year. That I believe they've raised something close to three hundred million on a one point three, one point five billion dollar valuation. Um, it's different model because they're actually leveraging instead of ghost kitchens where you have multiple brands each, they're basically retrofitting like sprint sprinter vans, electric sprinter vans into kitchens that can basically cook the meal while it's en route to you within this small neighborhood in New Jersey, Westfield, New Jersey, I think. And um, the idea is that they can do more deliveries per, per hour and also unlock higher average order values because they're selling it to families where, you know, there's four people or, or, you know, maybe more ordering from this uh, concept. So they basically license, you know, well-known restaurants, uh, in New York city and some other cities and then bring them to the suburbs. And the idea is that like that brand recognition, you know, um, that there's demand for that brand outside of that core geography. And they basically license that concept on behalf of, from the restaurateur. And then they train those chefs in their commissary. Um, that's just like one big commissary. It's not subdivided into ghost kitchens to basically like create these sous vide packs of meals um, and then it's just kind of sitting in the back of the van where like the, the, the final prep state, um, the final prep work gets done to, to heat that meal while it's en route to the customer. So you could get your food in like, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, depending on where the nearest van is. Uh, if you put in your address into the zap, you can kind of see what you got. Um, so it's, uh, it's a kind of a crazy idea. Um, there's <laughs> some people when I put that out there, they're calling it the Quibi of food delivery, uh, which I think was kind of harsh. But, um, you know, I've been tracking that one for a while. It was called, it was going under a stealth name called Food Truck Inc. And finally, it's called Wonder.com. So uh, be very curious to see how that fits in with Mark Laurie's um, bigger umbrella, which he's calling his like new futuristic city. Yeah, you, people are going to want to eat in the city of the future. I hope so. Yeah. But I hope that they socialize from time to time. Uh, me, me too. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about the whole ghost kitchen model is it's, it's, uh, less CapEx intensive and, uh, coincidental, like, uh, and, uh, ancillary trend at the moment is because of work from home and remote work, like populations are shifting around right now. So if you, if you had the, the perfect restaurant location before the pandemic and you were spending a fortune on rent, uh, it likely isn't the perfect. Uh, location anymore because a bunch of your your target audience moved from san francisco to austin or whatever so mm-hmm. it feels like the the ghost kitchens may be able to be a little more agile totally yeah yeah the idea is you i guess you can sign a yeah you basically sign a 12 month uh commitment and it depends on you know the the city but they were doing different types of arrangements to get people in there um Definitely more flexibility and less, yeah, you, you spend 50K to 100K on kitchen equipment. Um, but I think they're located in markets where, you know, they expect that demand to continually grow. But it, when compared to a brick and mortar, like absolutely like, um, you know, there was a period where, you know, even certain ghost kitchens in Manhattan weren't operating because they were in... Um, you know, like business districts like Fidei and Tribeca and a lot of people had left the city. So, um, you know, you, you were in the clubhouse, I think with, with Corey from Zool. Um, and, and that was, that was the example there, but generally speaking, I think, you know, the bet is that, you know, the delivery will continue to grow wherever the, the cloud kitchen is located. Cause they've kind of picked that market on purpose. Sure. Uh, so let's, Let's zoom up to macro trends again for a moment. So, um, like, you know, wh- how much of the the stomach restaurants will win back? Like, I think the jury's out. Like, uh, you know, I'm like at the moment, I, I I'm expecting there will be some revenge dining, if you will, and <laughs> and you know, because uh, there's so much pent up demand that we're definitely going to see a, a spike in restaurant usage, whether that re- uh, persists or not remains to be seen. But it feels like one of the things that that's much more likely to be permanent is regardless of where you get them, a greater percentage of calories are, are likely consumed at home than before the pandemic. I just feel like, you know, a lot of the, those restaurant meals are forever going to be delivered now or consumed at home. Yeah. I, I, um, 
yeah, I think between grocery, be, between grocery delivery or between grocery and food delivery at home, the yeah home becomes bigger than it was before. For yeah, yep. I definitely agree. So then, one of the the trends that comes up is okay. So you know, digital grocery wasn't a huge thing before the pandemic. It, it instantly overnight became a huge thing. And as Scott and I have talked about in a bunch of contexts on this show, um, when something's a brand new trend the smart thing to do and the thing everyone does is outsource it, right? So when e-commerce for apparel was a brand new thing, there were a bunch of, you know, e-commerce companies you outsourced it to. Target and uh, Toys R Us outsourced their e-commerce to a a bookseller in Seattle called Amazon, right? Um, And over time, as as a business becomes more real and more legit, it, it increasingly is a mistake to outsource it because it, it, you know, your core customer experience. Um, and so lately we've been talking about that a lot with the digital grocery space and, you know, so many people outsource to Instacart. And is that really in the, the, that made sense in the short run? Is that a good long-term solution for grocery stores? Obviously restaurants very rarely stood up their own digital infrastructure. It seems like the overwhelming majority relied on these marketplaces, which I, I guess DoorDash and Uber Eats are the two, two biggest, um, and my understanding is that the unit economics for the restaurant totally, totally sucked through those marketplaces. Is, is that going to be the way that customers always discover their delivery restaurant meals or, or like we've seen in other categories of e-commerce? Do you think more restaurants will try to have their own digital ordering experiences or how could that play out? Yeah, I think that the the direct channel is going to definitely become, you know, it's become a must have, you know, you have to have your own direct channel. So the question is, how do you manage these two things, right? And and this goes for grocers as well as restaurants, right? All these apps are kind of disintermediating the relationship between your customer and your business, you know, and so the goal is to figure out how to make those sales incremental on the marketplace, and then drive, you know, longer term retention through um through your own channels and so you know instacart has its own white label tech you know they've they've been able to create a suite of products that you know grocers can kind of pick and choose from if they don't want the marketplace um you know wegmans is a good example of this they've you know leveraged the white label um they're also on the marketplace um you know as far as the restaurants you know obviously doordash has storefront I'm pretty skeptical of, but you know, there's also DoorDash Drive on top of all these white label platforms, whether it's you know Chow now or you know Square has an integration, I think, with um with DoorDash now. So all these POS ordering systems are gonna have integrations with last mile fulfillment. So I think it's just gonna be about balancing it out and and being smart about how you uh kind of load balance those two all these different channels. And, and the number of channels is gonna continually increase, I think. Um, and so, you know, it's a must that you have a, uh, you know, it's become a must that every grocer and every restaurant have their own direct ordering and, you know, we can get into the micro fulfillment and all that stuff, but yeah, um, yeah. No, I, I, I do want to get there. It is, I, it's funny. Uh, I, you know, I spend a lot of time with, with, uh, uh, clients in the restaurant space and I talk a lot about needing to own the customer experience, which is increasingly digital. I mean, I think Panera came out like last month and said that over 50% of all their orders are now from the website. So they're a digital first restaurant. Um, yeah. And every time I bring this up with clients, they're like, yeah, but Jason, you don't understand the magnitude of the problem. Like we could never own our own delivery. Like, do you know how much delivery capacity that would require? It's impossible to build. And I'm like, have you heard of Pizza Hut? Like it's, it seems like there are all these restaurants that just it's endemic in their model that they'll have delivery. Like every independent Chinese food restaurant in America has always delivered. It seems, seems odd that, that restaurants are so reticent to own their own, own capacity. Well, it is true that like if you, if they were actually going to go and hire all those drivers, you know, whether they be contractors or full-time employees, that, that does require a lot of demand and it does involve a lot of know-how that they don't necessarily have. So it does make sense why this was the easy choice in the pandemic for them to like steal so much share away. And, you know, um, because there was no other solution, right. That's like easy. So 
I think the thing there is to really break down the, the things that they can do themselves and the things that they should outsource. And I think when it comes to, you know, delivery, it's clear, like no, no restaurant, unless you're, you know, Domino's or, you know, you have a ton of local delivery demand that is going to like really operate their own fleet. Uh, a lot of people will just outsource it to like DoorDash drive or now Lyft is getting into that space. Uber has an API and you know, Olo has a aggregate kind of API um, that will allow restaurants to just basically ping this real-time marketplace of these services and just pick whichever is going to be faster and cheaper. They can kind of set the parameters of like, you know, how fast or how cheap they want it to be and they could pass or subsidize it to the customer. So, you know, that, that part I don't expect restaurants to do. I absolutely think restaurants need to have their own website, whether it's, you know, some sort of CMS that they're licensing from someone else or, build it themselves and then integrate it with uh, a DoorDash drive or one of these other players. Yeah. And I guess that is one of the interesting, like, so if you look at some of the other segments of e-commerce that evolved, like uh, a company I talk about uh, often is this company called GSI. And in the early days of e-commerce, uh, if, if uh, you know, an investor said, Hey, should we get into e-commerce that the CEO would go, yeah, I'm going to hire this company GSI to do it turnkey. Right. Cause that, in the same way that it was easy and it wasn't economically meaningful in the same way that you might, you know, put your menu on DoorDash when it's not mm-hmm. economically meaningful. Um, and, and it, by, it by far was the easiest thing over time. Uh, every retailer realized, Hey, it's a mistake to outsource this, this business to GSI and we need to own that. But GSI didn't actually go away or go out of business. Like hey, GSI made a bunch of money in the, the founder of GSI is this guy, Mark Rubin, who owns the 76ers and Fanatics and a bunch of other good things. So he's a success story. And GSI still exists today. They uh, they operated under a different name called Radial. And, and they pivoted from providing all these services turnkey and sort of outsourcing it to providing the a la carte services that a retailer, you know, didn't think it made sense. Right. So they leaned into order management and... Mm-hmm fulfillment and 3PL services um, and, you know, kind of over time, slowly, gradually moved away from the uh, selling everything as a bundle. And it, it mm. seems to me that, uh, like, you know, you could imagine not all of DoorDash, but some part of Instacart and DoorDash could could follow that same trajectory. Totally. Yeah, totally see that playing out like that. So, So some of those that you talked about, as a restaurant, so as a consumer of these things, the quality of delivery is pretty bad. Um, I don't know if there's any good data, but mine's probably like <laughs> 60 to 70% getting the order right and getting it here kind of within the window. And I don't know if that's, you know, I'm in a smaller city, so maybe that's just part of the city here. But I don't know if you guys in Chicago and LA have the same problem. I heard the Triangle is um, going to be the biggest city in America in like two years. <laughs> We do. We do. We're, we're considered a Goldilocks city because we've got this interesting. We're kind of like we match the U.S. demographic or something in a certain way. Anyway, City Search was launched here because of that. Um, so if I'm a restaurant, you know, one of the things that makes Amazon Amazon is they control that customer experience. So it seems like even if I'm going to use one of these network things, it's not never going to be as good as doing it myself. Do you just think the economics are not there to do it yourself? As far as um, no, I think. Yeah, I, to, it depends what you're saying, what you define by doing it yourself. If it's owning the customer relationship, that's just the front end, right? So, you know, let, let's, Domino's never made a buck delivering the pizza. They make mo- all the money on the actual, yeah. you know, pizza itself on the margin of the products, right? So mm-hmm. do what you do best, own that customer loyalty, right? Through whatever loyalty system you're going to use with your own front end, but outsource you know, that last mile component where the driver picks it up and, you know, delivers it to your customer, that last component, you know? And so why should, why should anyone have to go and build that? Because if, it, you know, the pizza, you've spent all this time, the whole thing breaks down when the pizza gets there cold because, right. and upside to, down. you know, they delivered, you know, 60 other things and the pizza was last. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's also, you could also, you know, hire your own fleet and then leverage these other software players. There's one called get Swift. There's another one called, um, on fleet that basically allow you to manage your own drivers. And yeah, I think, you know, part of it is like product innovation, right? Like obviously Domino's engineers, it's pizza to be like, 
you know, keep, retain the heat very well. And that kind of impacts, uh, this comes full circle with the, the glucose monitor, right? It's like, it makes you uh, feel like crap after, but you know, um, it's worth it. <laughs> but so I think it's, a, it's kind of a combo of like designing things that work for delivery, like literally like testing, like, you know, there, there are restaurants that would like literally go and like test order their products and see like, okay, well we need to like, cook it at this temperature so that by the, you know, the time it hits this guy's house 30 minutes later, it's like at the perfect, you know, crunch or whatever. And like, that's, you know, that's a little extreme, but like, you kind of have to factor that in. And then as far as like the drivers, you know, screwing up and doing other things, like, I don't know, you guys, I, I guess like, I think it's just asking a lot for the long tail of restaurants. Like forget the major QSRs, right. It's, you know, the long tail of restaurants, you know, to to do this kind of thing and you have to remember a lot of the reason why these guys even got on delivery in the first place was because uber and postmates and all these guys and doordash offered logistics when grubhub just started as a pure marketplace that was sitting on top of existing kind of chinese restaurants and pizzerias that were already set up to do this through the phone right mm-hmm. so they've kind of unlocked that and for for a long tail of restaurants that would have never done delivery had they had they not have access to this on demand fleet, so I think it's that fleet is here to stay. But I think the way in which I just think you know the vertically and it's clear that the vertically integrated model is, is much better, and you can see this with like chains like Cluster Truck, uh, which is you know just like a vertically integrated ghost kitchen that that works with uh, Kroger. Yeah, it's a good brand. Yeah. Um, All the good brands Lori taken, didn't come so up. Cluster truck is what was left. <laughs> what a cluster truck. So I think you'll see a mix of this kind of white label with the DoorDash drive and then like the vertically integrated kind of first party player that, you know, is basically delivering and maybe leasing the space or owning more and more upstream to get better data on like, okay, when should you fire this item and, you know, on, on, your your stovetop and you know just to make sure that the timing is that the food's not just sitting out there waiting for a driver like a lot of these pos connections have not even been linked up right yeah. there's like no kind of connection between like what's in my inventory or what you know and 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 what's being listed on the marketplace right so that's why you get all these like out of stocks and refunds and and um you know, restaurants are not updating customers on like what the ETAs are because there's no transparency into w- those operations because they're operating in o- completely offline. Yeah. The worst here is our local Mo's where they have six iPads and they forget to check them. And you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, ha- I have to go in because, you know, you, you can never get anything delivered within an hour of, of placement. Mm. Um, and when you go in, there's like all the frustrated Uber Eats people sitting there waiting and yeah. they haven't even pulled the little tab off of the eighth iPad that is the Grubhub yeah. one. Um, the one that's super frustrating is Panera because they did their own delivery here locally and then they just started outsourcing it to Grubhub, I think. And the quality like literally mm-hmm. went down, you know, like 80%. But mm-hmm. they they also, um, you know, they seem to be ahead. And I think Jason one time mentioned over half of their orders are, are digital now. Um, and that that's kind of more like the Starbucks mobile kind of thing where, where more and more people are ordering digitally from the restaurant, either to eat in or, or out. Do you have any interesting data on that? Or are they, are they kind of, are they ahead of the pack or are they are most restaurants that have mobile ordering getting to that 50% mark? No, I think, I think there's only gonna be so many brands that can own that with the customer. Um, I mean, Jason probably knows better, but you know, they're, you know, the, the, the golden standards are like the sweet greens, the Starbucks and, you know, there's payments actually has a great ranking P Y M N T S shout out to the no vowel club. Um, they, they have a great ranking of, of food delivery apps or, you know, restaurant apps that by, you know, how, how well they, they do loyalty and all these other things. Um, Casey's general store is a very interesting use case that I'd say like somewhere in the 60% range of, of transactions flow through their mobile app, whether it's loyalty or delivery or pickup, which is pretty fascinating. One thing to remember, and this goes back to Olo is that the majority of these transactions are going to be pickup or curbside pickup, um, delivery is still pretty small, um, 
And um, so it's, I, you know, as much as everyone talks about delivery, 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 I think um, pickup deserves, uh, you know, a, a fair mention because, um, you know, that's a, a lot of people are doing that to just save time when they, when they get to the store. And I think you're going to see more of this QR ordering and other types of channels where you can kind of view the menu and maybe even order before you sit down. Now, is that going to be a romantic night out with your spouse? Um, you know, when you're, you're dining out for a nice, you know, nice dinner, like, no, but there are certain occasions where it's going to make sense to like, you shouldn't be waiting. Right. And so that's kind of what this is all about. Just, you know, more free time to do more fun stuff. Yeah, no, uh, I, I do think that's interesting. I think there are going to be use cases where people are going to like consider foregoing the waiter to be a advantage, right? Like it's in some cases, it's annoying when the waiter is not writing down your order and you're, you know, they're going to get something wrong versus being able to like beam your order exactly how you want it directly <laughs> to the kitchen. And there are other times when that ordering is an important part of the, the ambiance and the experience, right? Totally. Yeah. Yep. Um, that's the rise of the QR that I think we saw through COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, QR, uh, the, the mighty QR code is, is back. I think that's a, uh, a article on your, on the <laughs> uh, homepage right now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's come back to that in a minute. I do want to pivot because, uh, in, in classic Jason and Scott, pe- uh, fashion, we're using, we're burning through time, uh, to grocery a little bit because you did, you did kind of talk a lot about the prevalence of pickup versus delivery. And I think that that is also very prominent in how it seems like digital grocery is playing out. Um, the, like in the same way that, uh, you know, at, uh, as a fast turnkey solution, a lot of people outsource, uh, their, their restaurant business to, to DoorDash. Um, a lot of independent grocers were pretty quick to outsource their, and some quite large grocers. Uh, outsource their gross their digital grocery to Instacart, um, and one of the things that's interesting to me about these marketplaces getting a bunch of the business is they then have opportunities to kind of uh, cherry pick pieces of the business that they want to steal from their marketplace partners, right? And we've mm-hmm. seen Amazon do that with private labels. Um, the you know uh, arguably like the DoorDashes are are doing that with Ghost Kitchens. Um, and there are some rumors, uh, about Instacart, you know, having their own warehouses to fulfill, um, like top off orders. And I, I'm curious if you have seen any of that, or if you have a hypothesis about how that might play out. Not shockingly, Instacart totally denies it. Oh yeah. I mean, this has been a narrative that's been, been there for a while and it makes sense that people fear this because the constant story with technology and, and these you know, kind of offline businesses has generally been like David versus Goliath. And, um, I, I can say, so I, I put out a story about Instacart getting into micro fulfillment with Publix. I'm not, not sure where this is going to be deployed, but they're basically building an MFC with Publix and they may be doing it with more grocers, but this is the info I received. Um, and I think Instacart, it's 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 going to be a, it would be a very poor decision for them to become a first party retailer and compete against its its their grocers and unlike DoorDash where there's I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of of businesses on there there's only a few hundred retail partners on the Instacart platform and each of those partners are very meaningful I mean like the the head of the tail you got Albertsons you got Kroger you know these are big 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 partners. And so if they were to ever take that data, what those customers, you know, who they, they basically have aggregated and, and basically went and competed against those partners, that would just be all out warfare. And I don't, I'm, I've spoken to people there and, and I've done some homework into this and I, I really don't think that that's in the cards for them. Um, despite the fact that there's so many other guys coming up who are vertically integrating and, and there's obviously lots of pros to that, but what I see Instacart doing as a response to that kind of thread is just basically creating more virtual storefronts on top of like D to C companies or getting into other non-food categories 
that can be sold from kind of any kind of warehouse that may not be a two hour fulfillment time. It might be a two day fulfillment and that'll eventually work its way to same day. Um, that's kind of the high level there. It's, um, you know, a lot of other grocers, you know, so Instacart's, I think offering MFC micro fulfillment centers, which are automated and usually attached to a retail store because you kind of automate the bulk of items, you know, picking through this system and then you're picking the rest in the store. And that has its own set of challenges. We can speak. It's a very long debate. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, they're, they're not going to, to centralize that process. It's going to be done on a per grocer basis. And they're going to offer that in the same kind of fashion, I think, is they're going to offer that enterprise white label solution. Because yeah, once you hit, I don't know, call it three, 4,000 orders is when you have to start looking at, okay, I need to move to a dark store. Or I need to do a manual pick in a dark store that's not attached to my store because you don't want, no, no customer wants to go in and see all these shoppers coming in and ruining the experience, right? So, and the grocers know that every order that gets fulfilled from like inside the stores when you're doing this is just going to be lost revenue. So um, they definitely want to, to not outsource it, but like move it outside of the store because when you start messing with the store, you're cannibalizing those sales. So that's the equivalent of Scott's experience of standing in line behind the 12 Uber delivery drivers, right? <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's just like, that's kind of the moment where like going back to like why I got into the space, when you have those moments where you see like the majority of people here are not actually consuming this food, right? It's like, then you're like, holy crap, we've entered in some other weird phase of the future. Yeah. Yeah. I rem- I distinctly remember going to pick up a, a fast food order during the pandemic and I like popped into this restaurant and they had reconfigured the whole dining area to be pickup tables for the eight different food delivery companies. <laughs> yes. And you're like, every, every restaurant out here has done that and put like little printed signs like this is the DoorDash table. This is the Grubhub table. Yeah. Part of me was like, you know what I really want to do is stand outside this window and just like see who's winning. <laughs> because <laughs> you could you could physically yeah, so watch it right I should like, steal that from you yeah, yeah i actually yeah. walk in with them well you'll DoorDash. actually do the work i won't so feel free to steal it. <laughs> i i put on a doordash mask um because like it just happens to be handy and i was and i got one for free and everyone thinks that like i'm waiting for a doordash order so i get to like cut in line it's kind of fun i like it <laughs> uh you've mentioned mfc's a couple times uh and a lot of our listeners will be super familiar with that uh but just um to take half a step backwards and then I promise to ask a question. Um, so grocery delivery is awesome. Uh, uh, Walmart and Kroger love selling, selling uh, digital grocery um, better than they love losing the order to Amazon. Uh, but the one uh, inconvenient truth is that most of those digital grocery orders right now are wildly unprofitable, right? Yeah. Because in the old grocery model, the customer pays all the labor to pick the product and they pay the labor to drive it home. And in the the digital model, the customer expects Walmart to pay to pick the product <laughs> and drive it home, yeah. um, which is not very favorable. So the the working hypothesis is, man, you know, customers are pretty happy picking up the groceries outside our curb and that saves us the delivery costs. Um, and if we can eventually get robots to pick the order instead of humans, which is a micro fulfillment center or a M- MFC, um, we can cut 90% of the picking costs. Uh, so it, it does seem like that's a big trend right now. Our, our grocery stores like expanding their pilots of these M- MFCs and investing a lot more in their, their curbside pickup experience. Um, are, is that the model that you see winning? And and to be honest, like I'm optimistic that that could potentially be profitable. There's other smart people. My friend Sucharita, um is is pretty adamant that even with those two evolutions, that digital grocery still doesn't have have mm-hmm. workable unit economics. I think her skepticism is definitely warranted. You know, I actually you know was biased in favor of MFCs, and I started digging in the last few weeks. Um, into the shuttle MFC technology and as well as the CFC technology that Okado's used. And, you know, I can say that um, a lot of these early entrants into the market who are doing the shuttle technology, and that's like the takeoffs and the uh, alert innovation, um, you know, I think that was like the 1.0 test. 
And I, you know, Albertsons did say they're going to do like nine of those. They'll have nine up and running this year. So they are doubling down. But what I did see was like Dematic, which has a shuttle product product and has also seen it being used at Amazon Fresh. Um, they're actually recommending Auto Store for most of their grocers. And Auto Store, you know, the best deployment I think that we can see in the U.S. is a Philly Philly deployment. It's actually an e-commerce fulfillment center um, that's going to sit outside of the city that will do next day and same day delivery. Um, I think will be pretty profitable. And I think some of these shuttle ones are the jury's out on whether or not they can actually fulfill the demand fast enough and that they can actually be, you know, they, they can actually have those paybacks. Um, I think auto store is targeting about a four year payback for grocers. So there's obviously so many variables and so many different things. You have real estate costs, labor costs, you have, you know, geographic density, you know, it doesn't make sense to, you know, plop a huge monolithic CFC, which has, you know, very low per unit picking costs in a, in a, in a neighborhood like in a town like Cincinnati, where there's only 300,000 people. Or, you know, and if you're if you're at six million people, you know, then that kind of works. And that's why Ocado kind of really works well in the UK. I'm skeptical of what that's going to look like um, with Kroger in the U.S., um, and so, yeah, the short answer is like, there's, there's no, I think one size fits all deployment because every situation is different. Um, but the hope is that over time, you know, you can get more and more stuff in the automation and out of the store. And what's happening with some of these early 1.0 players from what I'm hearing is that they thought that they would put, you know, 80% of the most popular ordered most popular ordered SKUs in the automation and the other 20% with, you know, the, the deli meats and, and uh, the dairy and all this stuff that um, is more, it's maybe faster moving or perishable. They, they, they keep it in the store. Um, it's actually proving out to be more something like 50, 50. Um, and, and at that point it's kind of a mess and you might not be paying that off for a long time. So um I think we're going to see auto store emerge as the, as the dominant uh, provider here. And, and yes, it's, it's an MFC technology, but it can also be done kind of as an EFC kind of detached. It's not as big and monolithic as a 300,000 square foot Kroger facility with Ocado. It's about 120,000 square feet. And uh, it's all about, you know, can you do same day pickup, same day, some same day delivery if you get it in quick enough in the morning or at the night before do next day. So that's what I'm seeing. Very cool. We're uh, running up against time. So, you know, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we got to sneak a little bit of Amazon <laughs> talking here. Um, so what do you, what do you think about all you know, Amazon's got a, a bunch of initiatives going on? Um, you know, we've heard GoPuff is, I think Jason calls them a top off um, kind of uh, thing. Um, you know, they're evidently spinning up to compete with them. Um, they obviously own Whole Foods and are doing a tons of things there. What What do you think about the the sphere of things Amazon's doing, and what has the most is most interesting to you, or is most likely to be successful? So the one thing that I have unearthed over the last month or so was the kind of um, center aisle kind of goods, your you know non perishables being delivered same day from Amazon. They actually announced this, I think, right, literally like a week before the pandemic hit, um, that they were starting this in a few cities. And, you know, then COVID happened, demand goes through the roof, and then they got to kind of just like put that aside. But what I'm seeing is um, they have this new kind of fulfillment center that's, call it 45 miles outside the, the customer, and they are stocking it with about 100,000 of the most of the fastest moving SKUs that are not fresh. Um, and they're building about 2 million square feet, square feet per major Metro um, to do this. So I'm actually trying to go down to San Diego and do an Amazon order for that. And, and I'll report back. Um, you should sneak but, in. Uh, why, why just order? We need you to sneak in. There. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to do a delivery. That's what I'm saying. Like I'm signed up oh, as okay. a flex right. driver. Oh, okay. So, All right. Um, All right. Get a little lost looking for the bathroom. <laughs> but they they co-locate. They're starting to co-locate these um, next to their larger sortation centers. 
So um, they're kind of piggybacking on their existing infrastructure. At the same time, they're, you know, they're going to do, they're dipping their toe into grocery, into fresh. Um, I think we're tracking about 36 some odd fresh stores open sometime this year. And then obviously they have 500 Whole Foods stores that they could take some of those learnings and and apply there. I'm not sure how that's going to be leveraged in the entire ecosystem. You know, there's obviously there's so much, there's so many products with Amazon, whether it's like they had Prime now, they just finally announced that they were like going to merge that into uh, core Amazon or fresh. I'm not sure. And then, you know, with Whole Foods, they had 365 Whole Foods and now that is getting consolidated into just Whole Foods. So I think you're going to see them move around these different chess pieces and figure out what to do with all their assets. I think like at a higher level, what you, what this is all leaning towards is this on the grocery front, it's, you know, free one hour delivery, um, from one of these whole foods or fresh stores, or maybe even a dark fulfillment center, um, for prime members. And then like for CPG buyers, going back to this whole disintermediation thing, like a consolidated buy where, some brand is able to purchase shelf space and digital product placement um, on the website and building that flywheel between online and offline. And then on the GoPuff stuff, that's like maybe less perishable. They're going to just, they're going to, they realize that they, you know, I think kind of gave some of that to Walmart and Target to those stores um, that really went on the kind of same day. So now this new infrastructure that they're building out you know, like I mentioned, 2 million square feet, which is crazy per, mm-hmm. per metro is going to kind of, I think, attack that pretty hard. Um, so that's what I'm seeing. Wow. It's 2 million square feet at Amazon is a small test. <laughs> oh, one, one other thing I should mention is that they're also becoming their own distributor. So once, once these stores become, get a certain volume, it doesn't make sense to use like Spartan Nash or uh, unify so they're gonna they've i've also confirmed in three markets la orlando maryland that they've also become their own distributor to those stores unlocks more margin um allows you know and obviously with all this their their delivery costs are the the lowest in the business i estimate they're about 50 cents per bag um call it maybe four bucks an order average order values on these things are typically 100 130 bucks um, you know, a lot of these, you know, Instacart charges 10%, these micro fulfillment guys net, like not even including, um, not including the last mile delivery. It's still like North of 10%. So Instacart is still a really good bet for a lot of retailers, um, because the, a lot of this technology that was really hot and that they sold that narrative, you know, isn't panning out to be as, as cost effective you know, like your, your friend at Forrester mentioned. So, um, that's, that's where we are right now. Can't wait to see what happens uh, towards the end of the year as things kind of normalize and and more of these, these MFCs get deployed and Amazon starts to kind of unveil more of these things. Cause I'm seeing San Diego coming up. So we should see more markets get that same day of the hundred thousand SKUs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, side note: Scott will be super excited when they when Amazon starts outsourcing its distribution, its grocery distribution capability to its competitors too. Right? Like you could you could totally imagine that. Um, we're we're past out of time, uh, but I want to leave you with one lightning question. Uh, of course, in addition to Whole Foods and all this delivery, Amazon uh, has obviously launched their own more mainstream grocery format, Amazon Fresh. Um, I think you and I have known about this for a while, but like it's it's there's a new cycle right now where everyone's reporting that the next Amazon Fresh store in Seattle has just walk out technology instead of the dash cart. Right. Um, do you have a guess two years from now? Like, has does Amazon Fresh scale? Are there two thousand of them? Are there none of them? Are there ten thousand of them? One of them? What do you think? Well, it's a great question. I think yeah, we're just at the tip of the spear here, and I think um, it's going to be a mix of dark and you know experiential infrastructure. And um, you know, right now that's kind of one in the same. I'm going to be curious to see where all these you know where all this demand gets fulfilled from. But I think you know Amazon's super efficient with their inventory, and you know compared to a lot of other grocers that don't know what's in their store. 
I'm pretty confident that Amazon knows exactly what's inside it. At least it's fresh stores, you know, and maybe they're getting the, the whole foods onto that tech. So, you know, I think you can unlock a lot with just pure manual picks, you know, software um, from inside the store that gets you to a certain amount of capacity. And so the question is, how do you keep growing that? Do you fortress with more retail stores? Do you build dark infrastructure? Um, I think they're just kind of moving, forging like full speed ahead. And, and I think it may not be a ton of retail, but there's going to be some kind of warehousing that's going to have to be built to support this demand. Um, and, you know, I think it's dipping now. I think a lot of grocers are reporting like a dip in their online sales, as we've seen this massive surge you're talking about with restaurants and this pent up demand that's down, you know, maybe, you know, somewhere between five to 10% of its highs. So will we get to 20% penetration over the next, you know, five, three, four or five years? Maybe, I don't know. Like, you know, it's, it's hard to say exactly, but I think Amazon is, is very well positioned and they're, and they're doing it in a, in a, as close to profitably as anyone could possibly do it. So, um, yeah, that, uh, it's actually a great point. Uh, there's a huge amount of loss in traditional grocery in just out of stock. So, uh, you know, a, a total byproduct benefit of rolling out that the just walk out technology to grocery is to have a, a much better, more accurate handle on inventory. Oh, interesting. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, they're doing a lot of that with like C stores and other kind of non food retail, retail as well. Yeah. Uh, and that could and, be, you know, the bane of Instacart's, you know, existence is they, they don't have, accurate inventory from their their marketplace yeah. sellers and obviously that's a you know we suddenly have all this like crappy for substitution if you know exactly how many <laughs> bananas you have right um you know things things uh the customer experience can be very different yeah i, I yeah totally i think well instagram has to use ai be, to make basically make up for that um it waste is a huge thing and if you can solve that problem you boost the margins significantly and then, you know, you could make, you could maybe break even on delivery. Um, so that's going to be, that's another huge solution, you know, challenge for these grocers and some of these automation players are selling solutions in that, in that kind of category as well. Yeah. It's, it's definitely going to be an interesting year in the food space. Um, and Matt, we could, we could dive into this for another hour, but uh, <laughs> it has happened again. We've uh, used more than our allotted time. Uh, so for sure, if listeners have questions or comments about the show, feel free to hit us up on Twitter or Facebook page. As always, if this is the show that's going to help you jump to that next ring in your career, maybe you could do us a favor of uh, jumping on iTunes and finally giving us that five-star review you've been teasing us with. Matt, we really appreciate you coming on the show. If folks want to find you online, um, where where's the best place to find you? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. It's it's always great chatting with you guys. Um, it's hungry.tv, H-N-G-R-Y. It's hungry with no you dot TV. And there's a free free weekly newsletter as well as a you know paid subscription. So thank you, Jason, for your support. Um, but yeah, definitely get on the di- the weekly digest and you can see kind of what's going on uh, every week in Hungryland. So Wow, that is awesome. The The newsletter is well worth the subscription, although I'm pretty sure Matt lost money on mine because of the, <laughs> the mighty Publicis um, uh, accounting department trying to sign up for the newsletter. <laughs> uh, but uh, that being said, uh, great chat in with you. Um, and until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 